Hello, everyone, and welcome to BizLit Today, a podcast series hosted on Law.com and sponsored by Shook, Hardy, and Bacon. I'm your host, Scott Ferguson. There have been a series of unfavorable Biometric Information Privacy Act opinions for defendants in the Illinois Supreme Court, but that streak may be changing. Shook Biometric Privacy Practice Chair Matt Wolf, along with partners Bill Northrup and Camelia Tabone, discuss recent PIPA decisions in Illinois and if other states are considering similar biometric laws. There have been a series of unfavorable BIPA opinions for defendants, BIPA being the Illinois Biometric Information Privacy Act. But that streak may be changing. I'm Matt Wolf, the chair of the Biometric Privacy Practice at Shook, Hardy, and Bacon. Joining me to discuss what's happening in Illinois and legislative activity across the country are two of my colleagues. My partner in Chicago, Bill Northrup, who has extensive experience in biometric privacy. And my partner in Denver, Camila Tabone. Camila is a fellow of information privacy and is director of Shook's Privacy Compliance and Artificial Intelligence Governance Task Forces. Thank you both for joining me. Thank you for having me, Matt. Great to be here, Matt. I'm going to assume everybody listening to this knows something about BIPA, but if you don't, Bill, can you give us a quick overview of BIPA? Yes, Matt. The Illinois legislature passed BIPA in twenty. Uh, 20- Eight. Uh, it deals with the collection, handling, and use of biometric I- information and biometric identifiers. Uh, when we talk about biometric information, we're talking about uh, information that is derived from biometric identifiers. And biometric identifiers are things like an iris scan, a retina scan, a fingerprint, a voice print, or a scan of either hand or facial geometry. Um, in, in society, biometric technology actually has a wide range of uses. Uh, we see it used a lot in the employment context and biometric time clocks. We also see it in the consumer context and payment systems, virtual try-on technologies for online shopping, um, and it, it has been expanding. Uh, the Illinois legislature, when it passed the act in 2008, it did did so as a reaction or, or potentially overreaction to the bankruptcy of a company called Pay by Touch, which is its name suggests, uh, was using, um, was providing te- technology that allowed uh, you to pay at a point of sale system by using your fingerprint. That would be connected to your financial information, whether a credit card or a bank account. Um, and it was just a convenient system. Well, when it went into bankruptcy, the Illinois legislature was concerned about what was going to happen with pay by touches files. Would they be sold? Would they end up on the internet where people could connect uh, someone's fingerprint with their bank account information? So they passed BIPA as a notice and consent law to try and address that. Um, At the time, the Illinois legislature noted that biometric technology had a lot of promise, uh, but they felt that a notice and consent regime would allow it to be to be more useful. They also included a private right of action, which is what's driven a lot of the litigation. Uh, this after 2008, when this law was passed, it, it basically kind of sat there uh, for an extended period of time um, until uh, a decision called Rosenbach v. Six Flags, which was decided by the Illinois Supreme Court in 2019, and actually held that you could bring a BIPA claim without proving any 
loss of information, any data breach, or any actual damages. And since then, we've seen a massive explosion of litigation in Illinois, uh, largely against employers, but also against uh, companies that provide uh, services. And uh, each of those cases seeks damages as defined liquidated in the statute of 1,000 per instance. Uh, None of them allege any actual injury or data loss. So let's talk about the lack of injury just for a minute. So I understand a lot of BIPA cases are brought relating to timekeeping technology. And so just to use that as an example, in the timekeeping technology context, if a plaintiff writes and files a BIPA complaint, what are they alleging happened that harmed them? Uh, they are alleging simply a lack of notice and consent that their employer collected their information, uh, whether that's a finger scan or a hand punch, uh, to clock them into work and clock them out of work, um, and that they did it without the statutorily required notice and consent. Um, they may have transferred that information to a uh, payroll provider or payroll company, so you can have a disclosure claim that's tied into that. But they're alleging collection disclosure possession without consent. Uh, there's no, there's never any allegation of a, of a loss of data of an actual injury. Uh, but under the Rosenbach case, uh, that's not required by the Illinois Supreme Court, despite the fact that the statutory language actually does say that you have to be aggrieved by a violation to bring a claim. So you mentioned the presence of technology vendors in the background here, whether they're payroll providers or other types of technology vendors to um, companies providing biometric technology, do those entities get sued too? Yes, technology providers do get sued. Um, And uh, we've seen a number of technology provider settlements come down. Uh, Obviously, a technology provider is a attractive target to a plaintiff lawyer because if you have a single employer, you have the workforce at issue. If you have a technology provider, you potentially have the workforces of many employers that are potentially at issue. So you drive your plaintiff pool up. So is simply selling the technology to someone sufficient to have BIPA obligations or would the technology provider need to actually be receiving the data in some way? We believe that the technology provider should have to receive the data in some way in order to violate BIPA's requirements of collection or disclosure of data. Uh, If the technology provider simply sells a system and is not involved at all in um, in uh, the, uh, the the managing of the data related to that system, then the technology provider should not have obligations under BIPA. However, that doesn't prevent a plaintiff's lawyer from suing them. Um, and having to have the cost of defending a lawsuit uh, to prove that up. And, and we have seen quite a few BIPA cases that aren't filed that really have nothing to them. And sometimes they're voluntarily dismissed quickly because we can talk with the plaintiff's lawyers and get them to dismiss. And sometimes they're not because the lawyers don't want to let them go. And it really depends on the case. So turning to Camila, um, BIPA is an Illinois statute. It applies within Illinois. Are there any other jurisdictions that have a law quite like BIPA? There are. um, So Texas and Washington 
have BIPA-like statutes uh, that specifically regulate biometric information, but they don't have a private right of action. So they haven't gotten as much um, airtime, I guess, as BIPA has. Um, but there are other laws uh, that are popping up in the U.S. that impact the collection and use of biometric information. And there's basically two kinds. So the first one is uh, U.S. state comprehensive privacy laws. So if we go back a little bit and we think about how privacy and personal information is regulated in the U.S., we've tended to take sort of a sectoral approach with like specific regulations of financial information or regulations over health information, which is very different from what you see in other jurisdictions, mainly the EU and their comprehensive law called the GDPR, the EU General Data Protection Regulation. So in the absence of a federal privacy law like the GDPR, the states have taken action, starting with California, with the California Consumer Privacy Act in 2018. Now we have Colorado, Connecticut, Virginia, Utah, most recently Iowa, and, and then Indiana. And when I say comprehensive privacy law, I mean anything governing the collection and use of personal information, broadly defined as anything that links um, that identifies or could be used to identify an individual. So it could include specific sectoral types of of information, but it's actually just the broad brush PI. And so these state laws create a subset of personal information that they deem sensitive and biometric data for purposes of uniquely identifying an individual is typically included in that subset of sensitive data. Now, unfortunately, you know, consistent with the theme of patchwork regulation like we have for privacy in the U.S., the state laws have taken a patchwork approach for sensitive data and the requirements are not all uniform. Some states like Colorado require opt-in for sensitive data processing, which is this consent model, which would be similar to BIPA and the Texas and Washington biometric privacy laws. Other states um, like Utah, take a notice and opt out approach. So you have to tell the individual you're collecting the information and give them the right to opt out. And then California, um, always wanting to be different, they have this right to limit use and disclosure of sensitive personal information when that use and disclosure is for a purpose other than the business purposes set out in the statute. So unfortunately for companies that have to comply with these state comprehensive privacy laws, they usually tend to take the most stringent requirement and that's consent. And so for compliance with these laws, a lot of companies, to the extent that they collect biometric data for uniquely identifying an individual, they um, go the opt-in route. These state laws do not have a private right of action. Caveat for privacy practitioners, California has a limited private right of action, but it doesn't apply to the processing of sensitive personal information. So the fact that you don't get consent is not a matter that could be brought by private enforcement. Um, but these state laws are enforced by state attorneys general or in California, the California Privacy Protection Agency, which could bring an enforcement action if a company is not complying with the appropriate um, sensitive data processing requirements. The second bucket uh, of law, law, I say laws, but it's just one actually, that I wanted to mention 
It's something that um, came out of the Washington legislature just recently, and it's called the My Health, My Data Act. And just by the title itself, you would think that it's a health privacy law, kind of similar to HIPAA. But actually, the intent of this law was to fill in gaps because HIPAA only applies to certain types of entities uh, like healthcare providers. But it doesn't cover health data that would be handled by, you know, commercial businesses or other entities that are not specifically providing a healthcare service. So this act was intended to sort of fill in the gaps, but the way it's been written, it's so broad and it has a private right of action that it increases the risk for companies that are processing biometric data because biometric data is included within the definition of covered health data which is not just like diagnosis or condition, it's health status data. So very broad application. It's a, it's a consent-based law. So you need consent for collection, for collecting or sharing this information. Um, and it goes into effect relatively quickly. So March, 2024 for certain businesses and June, 2024 for others. Um, so while this one is not specifically a biometric privacy law. It's not a comprehensive privacy law. It's worth mentioning because it's it, it it just increases the risk for companies if they're using this type of information. Camille, can you give us an example or examples of places that companies should look or consider as they think about whether they would be impacted by the new Washington law? Like what kind of data should I be saying do I have this? if I'm a company, a consumer-facing company or something else? Well, what's interesting is the, the definition is, is similar to what you see in BIPA. So like the, the common uses that um, Bill was mentioning and the one that comes to mind is like the try-on technology. And what's interesting about the definition of biometric data in the Washington statute is that it's anything that's um, physiological, physical, or behavioral characteristics that can be used to create a template. So you don't necessarily have to create a template. So you don't have to be using it as like a, a, a feature for identification of the individual. Just the fact that you have like the scan of the face and that it could be used to derive a template means that it would fall within this act. Now, you might say, well, try on technology is like someone's trying on glasses or makeup. That's not necessarily health related. It's not diagnosis or condition related, but it's wellness related or like physical perception related. And so because the definitions in the statute are so broad, something like that could be considered to fall within the act. Now, the legislative process, there was a lot of comments on how broad this could be. And the the proponents of the law say, said that they didn't intend it to be this broad, but there's really no way to test it other than through the courts, right? So I'm sure that there will be lawsuits related to this um, and that some of these things will be defined, like, is it a broad definition or is it a more narrow definition? But definitely something um, to be on the lookout for. That's really interesting. And it's a good segue when you mention things getting tested in the courts back to Bill. So, um, Bill, you've worked on many BIPA cases and you're familiar with BIPA litigation in Chicago and throughout Illinois. Um, can you talk a little bit about 
things that have needed to be developed in the courts and are con continuing to be developed in the courts relating to BIPA in, in terms of definitions, damages, and other issues that are ripe for BIPA litigation. Yes, Matt. And there, I don't know if I would say there have been three or four waves of BIPA lit litigation, but there have been several. Um, and the result of that is that as legal issues have been explored, a, a large number of cases have been simply sitting, stayed, waiting for those resolutions. And the first one was the Rosenbach case, uh, which addressed whether or not a plaintiff had to be uh, assert actual injury in order to bring a BIPA case. Uh, that was decided in 2019 uh, and led to a large flood of litigation, largely against employers. Uh, that then led to uh, a case called McDonald. Uh, because the employers argued that this was an injury arising out of employment and therefore properly belonged in the workers' compensation system. Um, a lot of cases were stayed while that issue went to the Illinois Supreme Court, uh, and that uh, issue was decided a little over uh, over a year ago. Um, that then led to uh, litigation about the statute of limitations. And when I say the issue was decided, it was decided against employers such that cases could be brought in uh, state court, uh, even though they were arising out of employment. Um, then the next stage has been about the statute of limitations. And there have been um, two Illinois Supreme Court cases addressing that that were decided in the last three months. Uh, the first one uh, was a case called Tim's v. Black Horse Carriers. Uh, which addressed whether or not BIPA was governed by a one-year statute of limitations as a privacy act based on disclosure, or whether it was governed by a five-year statute of limitations uh, based on the catch-all statute of limitations in the Illinois statutes. Uh, the appellate court had an interesting uh, break on that and where they had held that certain claims in BIPA were one year and certain claims in BIPA were five years. The Illinois Supreme Court rejected that and made BIPA a five-year statute of limitations period. So if you have if you left your employer five years ago, you could still bring a claim up to that five-year point. Uh, the other case, and, and perhaps the most significant one, and, and the one that uh, may lead to some legislative reform, uh, is the Cawthorn v. White Castle case. In Cawthorn v. White Castle, uh, there was an employee who had used a consent-based finger scan system dating back to 2004 when she filed her BIPA claim in 2018. Um, the argument why Castle made was since she started using the system in 2004, BIPA was enacted in 2008, she should have brought her claim within five years of 2008 based on her first scan of her finger. Plaintiff argued that uh, BIPA claim should accrue based on the last scan of a finger, and therefore she was timely in 2008. Um, and the lower court had held that if act every time she scans her finger at work to check in, check out, go on breaks, um, that that was a new claim. And so potentially she would have five years of claims with a $1,000 liquidated damage per claim uh, at the time she brought her lawsuit. Uh, the Illinois Supreme Court did hold that BIPA claims accrue every time you scan your finger, um, which means potentially individual plaintiffs are not entitled to $1,000. They're entitled to $1,000 for every time they clock in and out of work. Um, that decision, there's currently, uh, as of the recording of this podcast, a motion for rehearing 
uh, that's pending before the court. I don't believe a decision has come down on that yet, but it could be, it is likely imminent. Um, and if that, and, and what we're seeing now is we're seeing a change in how some plaintiffs are bringing cases. Uh, prior to the White Castle decision, nearly every BIPA case was brought as a class action under the view that if it's $1,000 a person, you need a class action to kind of justify bringing the case. Um, we're actually now seeing individual plaintiff BIPA cases being filed in federal court. Uh, most of them are brought by a, a law firm called the DC Law PLLC, which is a newcomer to BIPA litigation, but they are bringing single plaintiff BIPA cases uh, seeking million millions of dollars per plaintiff um, based on every time they scan their finger to check in and out of work. Um, the majority of the plaintiffs bar, certainly the more established BIPA firms are still bringing class actions uh, and they haven't yet pushed the per scan argument in the way we're seeing now. Um, there are also active efforts to reform BIPA in light of the White Castle decision. And it's of course possible, although rare, uh, to see Illinois Supreme Court uh, take up a rehearing case, but it might happen here. And all of these cases have helped define the scope of the statute further. Um, the statute is pretty short. It doesn't have a lot of defined terms in it. It's missing some things that you might expect, like the statute of limitations period expressly in the statute, even though there's a private right of action. So litigation has defined a lot of these terms. And another case that is out there right now in the Illinois Supreme Court is a case called Mosby versus Becton Dickinson, which is a case where we represent the defendant. And that's going to decide the scope of what we call the healthcare exclusion to the definition of biometric identifier in BIPA. So that's it's potentially important across the healthcare industry in Illinois as it might carve out certain information collected from both patients and healthcare practitioners in the context of healthcare treatment payment or operations. But we have to see what the Illinois Supreme Court says about that because the statute um, you know, can be interpreted two ways. And that's why we're in court fighting about it. Um, Bill, continuing on the topic of litigation after these important early appellate decisions, many stays of cases that were in place due to Tim's White Castle are now being lifted. So what can we expect to see in those cases as they move forward? Well, we're finally going to see work up in in a large number of BIPA cases going on. And, and when that happens, the facts are going to start to be important. Um, almost, well, every one of these decisions that have gone up uh, before McDonald, um, Rosenbach, White Castle, uh, Tim's, uh, and Mosby have all gone up at kind of the initial pleading stages. There's been a motion to dismiss. Uh, the motion to dismiss was either granted or denied. Questions were certified in the cases where it was denied, uh, and it went up at, at a very pleading stage. And then most of the similar cases have been stayed during during those appeals. Uh, so really, the the testing of is what plaintiffs say is true about this technology hasn't happened yet. So it's easy to plead a BIPIC claim under Rosenbach. Uh, but now plaintiffs are actually going to have to prove them. They're going to have to prove that the system actually does collect what is defined as either biometric identifiers or biometric information. Um, 
you know, a, a real good example of this is kind of these virtual try-on cases um, that collect data points about a person's face, uh, but never connect those data points with a person's identity. It's created there, it creates an image, it shows you what the glasses will look like on your face, or it shows you how a shirt or a dress will look up on a consumer's body, uh, but it's not stored, it's not tied to identity, it's really not what BIPA was intended to address, and I think there are strong arguments that BIPA doesn't address it. Uh, we also see it in terms of um, exam technology, exam proctoring technology, where um, to the extent there's any biometric information collected, it's not tied to the identity of the student. Um, and so these facts are going to start to be able to be important. Companies are going to be able to argue that that what they have, that their system doesn't actually collect biometric information, even though it's based on a finger scan. So we will see how these cases proceed now that they actually will get into the facts. Thanks, Bill. Of course, litigation can be expensive even when you win on the facts. So Camille, what can companies do to avoid getting sued in the first place? So it's important to be proactive. And uh, we've heard a lot about data mapping and data inventories, and they're just so important. There's some criticism about, you know, you do your data map, you do your data inventory, and then it it sort of is like a snapshot in time and it doesn't have like a continuing evergreen stage, but it's something that can be revisited, reevaluated on a regular basis. And it's really important for the company to be aware of what information it's collecting, how it's using that information, who it's sharing it with. And then what laws apply? I, I mentioned the patchwork. Um, and, and a lot of times you have to look at where is the individual located about whom you're collecting the information in terms of thresholds for applicability. The state privacy laws have different thresholds, either based on revenue or number of records collected. The new Washington law that I mentioned actually doesn't have those thresholds. So it applies uniformly to anybody. Um, that collects this type of information. It has um, certain requirements for what it deems small businesses, which collect under a certain threshold, but otherwise it's more of a broad applicability statute like the GDPR is. So just knowing what you're collecting and how you're using it isn't enough. You have to sort of tie that to what the specific requirement is. Does it apply to the organization? Who are the uh, protected consumers? Um, because one thing, that I haven't drawn a distinction is with BIPA, we're talking about um, one of the you know key uses is the timekeeping. So basically employees are important stakeholders for BIPA. A lot of these privacy statutes with the exception of California um, exclude employees from the definition of consumer. So it's really just like the individual that's interacting with a business essentially in a commercial capacity. Business contacts would also be excluded for the most part. So it's important to just have a clear picture of what you're doing with personal information, who that information is about, and then understanding what specific requirements apply. And then, as I mentioned, it has to be maintained. So regular review yearly is recommended. Sometimes there could be material changes in the way the data is collected, like a different use, 
um, a different data element is going to be collected. Uh, a, a new service provider is going to be used. Um, those types of things would probably trigger relooking at your data inventory. And, and, and this isn't specifically required, but because biometric data is considered sensitive in certain jurisdictions, um, and because of the risk of potential litigation, um, it would be helpful to do a data protection impact assessment. So this is sort of looking at the benefits and the risks of the processing activity. So you can definitely look at the benefits to the organization, but you also really need to focus on the risks to the individual, how you mitigate those risks, and whether um, you know it's an acceptable risk or whether it's something where you want to say, you know, like for BIPA, some companies are like, we're just not going to use this feature, this technology in Illinois. You could end up seeing something like that for Washington with this My Health Data Act. Um, so understanding what the risks are to individuals and also what the potential um, enforcement might be, uh, putting all that in an assessment so you can say, look, we've looked at these issues, we documented them, we, we visit this on a regular basis, um, and that will sort of help you you know, being proactive and hopefully avoiding litigation or in the event you are um, sued, will help you with what you guys were talking about in terms of like the importance of the facts. What did you look at? What did you understand at the time, et cetera? Thanks, Camila. So we've been talking about biometric privacy and that's one of the top five privacy concerns that Shook has identified and is watching. We're going to talk briefly about the other four and Shook's capabilities in these areas right after this. Shook, Hardy & Bacon is a premier trial firm serving clients in the health, science, and technology sectors. We help companies resolve claims using creative solutions to complex commercial litigation matters. Shook attorneys build on decades of experience and are positioned to provide end-to-end -end litigation support. Welcome back, I'm Matt Wolf. We're discussing biometrics and privacy law. Recently, Shook identified the top five privacy concerns for companies. One of those is biometric privacy, which we've been talking about today with my partners, Bill Northrup and Camila Tabon. There are four more, we're gonna to just touch on them briefly before we finish up here. Um, Camila, do you wanna talk about two of them? Sure, uh, I'll talk about session replay and chatbots. So session replay, and, and I guess I'll say that this is really geared towards websites. And so even though we're focusing on session replay and chatbots because of litigation, it's just an overall recommendation to take a close look at your website and how you're using your website. Because the privacy laws that I mentioned have specific requirements for targeted advertising and sale that are causing companies to do certain things with disclaimers, banners, um, consent uh, mechanisms, preference centers, those types of things, and session replay and chatbot definitely play into that. So when a user goes on a company's website and they visit different pages, click on different links, the session replay software essentially records that and allows the company either to replay it or to create heat maps or click maps to understand like where users are going on the website, how they're using the website, how they're interacting with it. A chatbot is a virtual assistant where um, individuals can go and type in questions and get responses that are essentially helpful for the company because they don't need a live customer service representative. They can interact with their consumers via this chatbot. 
So the litigation that has been popping up relates to um, claims under state wiretapping statutes that the individual has not consented to their interactions or communications being recorded and potentially shared with service providers or other third parties. And so the litigation has been, you know, coming out of that, it's like really active in, in the past few, I guess, months, year or so. And what's happening is that companies are, the recommendation is for companies to put certain disclaimers related to the use of these technologies so that individuals are aware that they're being used and are essentially consenting to the interactions or communications being recorded and shared. And the reason I want to tie that to the website in general is because because of the privacy law requirements on targeted advertising and sale, you're starting to see cookie pop-up banners and you're starting to see cookie preference centers. And if you're having a disclaimer for targeted advertising, and now you're having to add a disclaimer for session replay, and now you're having to add a disclaimer for chatbots, it can get pretty complicated. And you also don't want to impact sort of the user experience. You want users to come to your website. Um, so those are issues that sort of require like different folks in the room to look at what are the requirements, what are the technologies we're using, what are the potential risks. And, and so those are two things that we've been seeing come up a lot lately. Thank you, Camille. Bill, can you talk about two more? Yeah, um, the next one is pixels. What pixels are, are there a code that a company insert on their website to track user activity so that the company can better understand their the effectiveness of their target advertising? So when a user visits a website uh, and the website has pixels, data about the user's visit is shared with third parties, such as Meta or Google um, or other companies. and and it's, this is really kind of come to the forefront because the CCPA has strong prohibitions against uh, selling data. And if you have pixels on your website, which almost every company does, you can be uh, unknowingly selling data about people who visit your website. And uh, recently, Sephora paid a $1.2 million fine to the California Attorney Generals because their use of pixels on their websites uh, violated the CCPA. And Sephora didn't believe they were selling data. They even had a disclosure on their website that says, we're not selling data. But because of their pixels and the information that was exchanged with third parties, which included identifying information for people visiting the websites, what they put in their shopping carts uh, was uh, held by the AG uh, to violate the CCPA. And ultimately, a very large fine was paid for that. Uh, the last topic is not really emerging. It's not new, but you really can't talk about privacy without talking about data breaches. And uh, you know, obviously, data breaches are usually uh, the result of a malicious cyber attack, uh, but it's in it's a situation where information is stolen from a system without knowledge or authorization, um, and they often result in confidential, sensitive, or protective information being exposed. And depending on the type of the information that's exposed, that will dictate the type of reaction and the type of actions that a company must take to remediate that. Thank you both so much. So we're going to wrap it up. Um, thank you for joining us today. We're Matt Wolf, Camila Tabone, and Bill Northrup with Shook, Hardy, and Bacon. Uh, Shook is a national leader in biometric privacy law and 
data privacy, litigation, and compliance more generally. Uh, we have proven experience at the highest levels of the court system and well over a dozen attorneys with experience with all of these issues. Thank you so much for joining us today. That brings us to the end of this episode of the Biz Lit Today podcast series, which can be found on law.com. I'm your host, Scott Ferguson. Join us next time. The choice of a lawyer is an important decision and should not be based solely on advertising. The views and information discussed in this podcast are for informational purposes only and are not intended to be any kind of legal advice.